Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Now, today we are going to discuss a very specific recent appellate decision and then the larger body of law behind that decision. You know, here at the Good Judgment Podcast, we're always looking for ways to share the latest appellate decisions in a way that is beneficial to our listeners. Today is just another one of those examples. And then sometimes we try to be mildly entertaining. Oh, yeah, yeah. I try to do that, too. Today, we are going to discuss the decision from the Georgia Supreme Court in a case called Johnson v. State, which was decided on March 15th, 2023. That is hot law, Wade. Hot, hot, hot the law. Yeah. So, you know, when that decision was published, Wade and I both immediately realized that, number one, this decision needed to be discussed on the podcast. And number two, this was an important decision. The citation that we have for this decision at the time of recording is only the Supreme Court case number. S-22A-0964. That's how hot this case is. Hot law, man. I'm sure by the time the episode is published, there will be more citation information, and it will be on Westlaw and whatnot. It'll also be available at goodjudgepod.com. You know, you don't need to stop what you're doing and write down that citation I just gave you, Tane. It's in our episode notes. And where can that be found? Also at goodjudgepod.com. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Now, Tane, let's start by discussing the facts of the Johnson case, okay? Yeah, but, you know, before we jump into the facts, we need to define a term uh, for our listeners that is going to be discussed prominently during the episode. Kind of feels like word of the day from Sesame Street. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about Sesame Street. Why do you know that? Liar, Elma. Elma, <laughs> so, word of the day. <laughs> Hybrid representation. Now, this term refers to when a defendant acts on his or her own behalf in court while he or she is at the same time represented by counsel. Yeah. uh, So our word of the day is hybrid representation. (laughs) Okay, cool. So, Tane, when we were in law school, we learned that extreme facts sometimes lead to uh, interesting appellate decisions. And I don't think this case is I think this case is bothly bothly is both extreme and unique. Yeah, this case came out of your hometown, like right in your backyard, uh, out of Augusta. And the oral arguments were actually conducted in Augusta during one of those occasions when the Supreme Court conducted appellate arguments outside of the uh, Nathan Deal Judicial Building. That's right. Mr. Johnson was tried and convicted of murder and other counts for acts that occurred in 1997. That's right. The state sought the death penalty, but the jury recommended a sentence of life without parole. That sentence was imposed in November of 2000. Remember, November of 2000. That will become relevant. Now, Tane, we all know that a motion for new trial must be filed, if it's going to be filed, within 30 days of the judgment becoming final. And a conviction is final when, Tane? When there is a verdict or when a plea is accepted. A written sentence is entered and is issued and it is filed with the clerk. That's when a conviction becomes final. Ding, 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 ding. And that becomes relevant right here because when we say a motion for new trial had to be filed in 30 days, it's either a motion for, for new trial or a notice of appeal. One of the two. Correct. 
So right. tell them about this case. So give them some more details about these dates and stuff. Sure. And yeah, these dates are important. So if you're driving, you know, just listen carefully. If you're not driving, you can jot these down. In the <laughs> case, the uh, sentence was entered on November the 17th of 2000. And the lead counsel, remember, one, this is a death penalty case that what that uh, predated the Capitol Defender's Office being created, and number two, that two lawyers had to be appointed to defend a death case. So, so that's why you have facts. a lead. So the lead counsel. Right. So lead counsel filed a motion to withdraw on December the 12th, 2000, which the court granted on that same day. That left one lawyer and about five days left for Mr. Johnson's motion for new trial to be filed. Now, Tane, to be fair, the co-counsel in the case never withdrew, mm-hmm. never filed a motion for new trial, mm-hmm. never substituted counsel, mm-hmm. did nothing past trial. Okay. So but. that sort of takes us to, okay, well, motion for new trial didn't get filed within 30 days. Notice of appeal didn't get filed within 30 days. That's right. However, the interesting twist on this is the day after the lead counsel withdrew, the defendant himself filed a pro se, quote, extraordinary motion for new trial. Two days later, after that motion for new trial gets filed pro se, the defendant sent the trial court a letter in which he requested his trial transcript and said, at this time, I have no attorney and I wish to proceed with my appeal pro se. The reason we're going into this level of detail is because it is obvious he's not trying to waive rights here. That's correct. That's right. So what happened then is the defendant wrote the clerk again in January of 2021. So about about two months after uh, the judgment was entered, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, sentence was entered, requesting copies of documents which he received from the clerk. It was very clear that the defendant had not waived his right to appeal and was very interested in appealing. Later that same year, the defendant wrote the clerk again and was told that a specific attorney had been appointed for the appellate process and that he would need to seek any additional documents through his attorney. Tane, tell tell him what the defendant replied with. The defendant responded to the clerk by indicating, quote, the appointed attorney has not represented to has not responded to any of my requests at all. That appointed appellate counsel never filed any entrance of appearance in the case. Now, over the next decade, and Tane, it's yes, a decade. decade. Yeah, we're talking 10 years. Uh, exactly. The defendant continued to correspond with the clerk, noting that the lead attorney had then died, that the other trial attorney was no longer practicing law, and that the defendant himself was indigent. Again, Again evidence he was trying to exactly. pursue this appeal. He's, he's clear that he is trying to exercise his rights to appeal this case. So in December of 17, the defendant's current appellate lawyer, who stays with him in 2023, entered an appearance. Remember that conviction was entered November 17, 2000. That's me. right. This is 17 years later. That lawyer had the trial judge enter an order appointing a special matter master, excuse me, to attempt to recreate the case file. I mean, they were trying to find the evidence, the transcript, the lawyer's files who had died and no longer practiced law. Right. They did the best they could. And I think they came up with a reasonably reliable transcript and record of the case. Yeah. And then in December of 2018, another year, right? One year, one year later, the trial judge entered an order allowing the defendant leave to file an out-of-time motion for new trial and appeal. Hearings were conducted over the next few 
years, yes, years. And in January of 2022, which is now 21 years and three months after the conviction, the trial court denied the motion for new trial. Now, when this appeal was first docketed, Tane, this is going to be a little bit of flashback for our loyal listener. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, he'll he'll remember this he well. He or she will remember this one. Exactly. Um, no, it's Christopher. We know who it is. The yeah. Supreme anyway, Court truth. Shout out, Chris. <laughs> Shout out. The Supreme Court dismissed the appeal, citing existing case law, which held that after a conviction, the trial counsel continued to assumably represent the defendant absent a formal withdrawal or substitution of counsel. Therefore, because of that presumption, the defendant's pro se filing of a motion for new trial made while an attorney represented him was a nullity. And Tane, I know it's been a minute since you've been the judge, but we have gone down that path of something filed while you were represented is a nullity. I mean, that was, there's a lot of case law on that. Yeah. And, and I mean, it made sense. Again, this is, this is one of those cases we talked about at the beginning where, you know, really egregious facts sometimes cause a change in the law or or a modification of existing law. I mean, these are terrible facts and, and and, they're going to get worse. Yeah. Well, yeah, they do. And, and so uh, the, the court essentially at first blush relied on the existing case law that said, Hey, you know, people can't just file things pro se when they have an attorney that's going to be too confusing for the trial court. It's going to be too confusing for the appellate court. We need to be hearing from one voice, from one, you know, one person, one location. But, you know, somebody kind of fell down on the job here and the defendant was trying to actively assert his rights. And so that gets us back to the facts of of the case and what happens And this is exactly what hybrid representation is. Right. And there's, I mean, there is a mountain of case law that had said any attempt at hybrid representation was a nullity, but let's finish the facts. Sure. So then the Supreme Court, having just dismissed sort of unilaterally the the defendant's motion for new trial and, and appeal, then reversed their decision to dismiss. And they said, you know what? We're going to allow this appeal to move forward. We want to have some hearings on this. And then they specifically asked the parties, and they had a lot of amicus briefs in this. They asked the parties to answer a very specific question, whether a pro se filing made by a defendant who is actually or presumptively represented by counsel is always a nullity. Dun, dun, dun. And then we get all kind of, like I said, all kind of amicus briefs. Right. Well, you know something's coming when the Supreme Court asks everybody to respond to a particular question. Yeah. Uh, they've got an, an issue. That's, that had nothing to do with murder or yeah. who shot who or whatever yeah, happened yeah. in the case. They're on their minds. So, so at this point, uh, that's the factual uh, background of the Johnson case. The defendant was convicted. No attorney filed a timely motion for new trial. He, the defendant, filed a timely pro se motion for new trial while the presumption of continued representation remained viable in his case. He had backup counsel who was still in place, uh, not backup counsel, but second chair, essentially, counsel uh, who was uh, in place. So stated another way, this defendant was convicted of murder, ordered to serve a sentence of life without parole, and under existing law, he could not ever get his case appealed uh, without recognition of this hybrid representation concept. So this is where our loyal listeners flashback is going to come out. Remember the Cook case? I do remember the Cook case. It had a weird little lifespan, and I'm not sure. Anyway. Yeah. 
Before launching into the implications of the Johnson case, which are not nearly as dire as everybody first freaked out when they read this, because I, I can't tell you the number of judges that contacted me saying, oh, my God. You're talking about the Cook, the Cook case? No, the, the, the Johnson case. Oh, the Johnson case. Okay. Because everybody was like, oh, my God, we've got to allow hybrid representation now. Mid-trial, the defendant gets to argue his case and cross-examine a witness. No, 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 no. Ah. Before we all get excited, calm down. And re-enter cook right well then so <laughs> remember so, what happened in that case when everybody lost their minds yeah well let's venture <laughs> off down that trail just for a brief respite right. okay you'll remember cook v state we have an app an episode about that it's in our it's in our library but it, it, let's revisit it a minute just so that not everybody procedurally you'll, yeah yeah so that'll make sense some listeners are probably asking themselves well why didn't the judge in johnson simply allow the defendant's new appellate lawyer who's trying to work on his behalf the opportunity to file an out-of-time appeal when it's clear that the defendant had not been afforded a fair opportunity to appeal his conviction. Right. Well, that answer, Tane, is in that 2022 Cook case. That's right. Now, you may recall uh, that Cook essentially eliminated the right of a, uh, of the trial judge to grant a motion for out of time appeal. That that was the basis of that of that opinion. The Cook decision held that if a defendant does not file a timely notice of appeal or a timely motion of new trial, which tolls the time to file the notice of appeal, then he or she cannot simply show cause to the trial court and be given the permission to file an out of time appeal. So the Cook decision says that if the defendant did not file a timely notice of appeal, his or her only recourse is to seek appellate review as a part of a habeas proceeding. But right. now, Tane, we haven't had an episode on habeas because we, you and I have not handled a bunch but tell the people the the constraints on your right to appeal via a habeas petition. Sure. So the defendant does not have the right to counsel in a habeas. Now, that's the first big issue. He or she can only assert... Unco I'm sorry, assert constitutional violation claims. And there is also a four-year statute of limitation on habeas. So, I mean... This case is 21 years later. Uh, habeas really isn't going to help if they find that there's no tolling or anything else. All that applying to Mr. Johnson, he would be simply out now that his 17 years had passed since his conviction or whichever different place. If you want to talk about 2022 when the Supreme Court allowed him to appeal, it had been 20 years, more or less. Right. So with with. With Cook in mind and the the decision from 2022 in mind, let's go back to Johnson Wade. So back to Johnson. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. 
The Johnson decision points out that this defendant really was in a no-win situation. His lawyers did not file a notice of appeal or motion for a new trial in a timely manner. The defendant himself filed a document that would serve as a timely motion for new trial, but for the the nullity rule, if that's what everybody calls it, which made him powerless to actually file the thing that he filed. And then finally, our friend Cook, the Cook decision, meant that even a new appellate counsel could not save the situation because the defendant had never filed his habeas action. So to use a more common term, Tane, he was screwed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So now here comes the life raft, I guess, by way of the Supreme Court. And when this case was argued, it was painfully obvious that they looked at the lawyers and said, what is there? This can't be right. This this is what they used to call in the ancient Greek uh, tragedies and, and comedies and drama the Deus ex machina, where there is actually something that comes down from heaven and saves the hero, the hero or the heroine of the story. Sometimes, Tane, I look at you and I don't know if you are absolutely lying. That you have no idea what you're talking about. Look it up. Or Deus ex a, machina. Or if you like, you're actually smart. I don't know. Sometimes I don't know either way. So here comes a decision from the Supremes. They found that the defendant does not have a right. And Tane, I don't know how you make the noises like that guy used to do on like Sesame Street where the quotation marks had a noise. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Bing, bing. Yeah, I don't bing, know what bing, it was, yeah. but yeah. He does not have a right to hybrid representation. That rule is not changed, people who are scared, by the Johnson decision. The defendant does not have a right to hybrid representation. However, go take But he may be allowed by the trial judge to do so to represent himself in a hybrid fashion in the quote-unquote appropriate case. So what are we doing here? We just punt it right back to the old trial court. That's what we that's what we do sometimes. That's right. Um, so th- let me t- let me let me say it the way they said it. Just because you do not have a right to something does not mean that it is forbidden. So in the case where the trial judge sees a real injustice, usually having to deal with de- mistimed deadlines and things like that, if the if the defendant himself or herself files a timely thing, the judge now has a mechanism to do something about it. Yeah. So that's really what this is. So, wait, I haven't read ahead on your notes because I never like to, you know, spoil the... uh, You don't like to study? Yeah, the end. I hate to study. Um, And wouldn't. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to urge our friends out there, if you ever employ this, Make it really specific why the facts in your case are super agreed. So, okay, we're getting there. Wade's, sh- Wade's shaking his head. Yeah, so, that's what they said. That they, yeah. they said, but let's yeah. let's just be clear. Just because you have a right doesn't mean that it's forbidden. What does your wife say all the time? Um, just because they which one? Just because they no, make not it in, which wife? Which statement? <laughs> just because they make it in your size doesn't mean you need to own it. Okay, that's okay. right. So, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. Right, okay. but. You have the right when you have an injustice. Right. And so let's say it again, merely because the defendant does not have a right to represent himself while he's simultaneously being represented by counsel does not mean it's prohibited. Right. It's up to the court. That was pretty clever what they did there. Where appropriate. That's pretty cool. 
Well, like, so in their language, the Supreme Court held in Johnson that our decisions that support an absolute rule against recognizing a pro se filing by a counsel defendant were their words, not mine, just wrong. Mm-hmm. And in summary, what they said was a court has the discretion to recognize a timely and otherwise procedurally proper pro se filing made by a defendant who is still formally represented by counsel. In essence, the court abandoned an absolute rule that allows trial judges to prevent gross miscarriages of justice when the defendant actually filed something that looked like a timely motion for a new trial or a motion for an appeal. Right. Then the court said something that we hope will allow all of our judge judge listeners who become apoplectic when this decision first came out uh, to just breathe a sigh of relief. And this is important. Wade, what did they say? Here's the quote. Given the logistical and legal problems hybrid representation can cause, we expect that courts will exercise this discretion only rarely as when trial counsel has failed to act within the prescribed time period to preserve the defendant's right to appeal and a pro se filing would preserve that right. And this is to Tane's point, when a court chooses to recognize such a filing, it should make that exercise of discretion clear on the record. Yeah, this decision is very interesting and contains some really interesting points of law relating to how Georgia's constitution differs from the U.S. Constitution on points that are relevant to this case. And how in later versions of Georgia Constitution, as it was amended from time to time, there had been some language similar to the Sixth Amendment language, obtained that said that that really... It said a defendant has a right to represent, right to a lawyer, right to represent himself, or both. Right. Later versions of the Constitution dropped the "or both" phrase, and that obviously in the statutory interpretation world that meant something. It was, right. That was intentional. That's right. In a different setting, examining all of the remainder of the case that would be really valuable, uh, but for the purposes of a podcast episode, we want to go in a different direction. The practical realities of the Johnson decision. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. That's right. And that's why we're not going to read all of that law. Right. Joe, you know, Tane, let's talk about the practical realities of Johnson, okay? Yeah. Beyond the motion for new trial setting. Judges routinely receive what all of us commonly refer to as jail mail. A defendant writes a lengthy letter to the court about any number of issues. And this... This issue was actually the first thing that came to my mind when this when this decision came out. I'm like, oh, Lord, right. I'm going to have to do something different with all my jail mail. Right. And uh, some judges have a pattern response, which notes that the defendant is represented by counsel and that the filing by the represented defendant is a nullity. Nothing in the Johnson decision changes that fact unless and this is a big unless all caps. Unless the judge reads the letter or filing and decides that the defendant is asserting something that would otherwise be time barred or which needs to be addressed to avoid injustice in some way. And for whatever reason, the defendant's lawyer failed to timely address that issue. That's right. So you may have to change your form response if you're if you were a judge, Tane. Yeah. You would have to change your form response and lose some of that. It's always a nullity language, but it's still it, it, you don't 
there's no right to hybrid representation remains a truism. Right. And, and what I would suggest that you add to your form, because I think you can still have a form response in these cases, is that you have taken into consideration the Supreme Court's um, recommendations in the Johnson case. You know, something to that effect that you would just add to your form to, and decline to um, allow. Or, or this does not th- this is not a circumstance which raises those kinds of implications or something along those lines. So the next thing, real life, how does Johnson impact our life as judges? Came The next thing that came to me, at least, was pro, sta- pro se statutory speedy trial demand. Which is one of the ones that we I used to receive most often from a defendant while represented by counsel. I can't begin to estimate how many of those I've received. Hundreds? Yeah, yeah easily. So unless the court exercises the discretion to allow that filing, a pro se motion for speedy trial made during while the defendant is simultaneously represented by counsel need not be given effect. I just think you need to avoid the response of is a nullity. I agree. I think you just change the language to say, A, it is it doesn't have to be given effect and that B, under Johnson, you've made the determination that's required under Johnson and you don't find this to be a case um, where the pro se pleading should be given effect. Remember, Tane, we talked about in an episode many moons ago. Yeah. The refusal to exercise discretion is an abuse of discretion. Right. So you can't say, I never, Mm -hmm. I would not ever. You just have to, things that cross your mind don't always need to come out of your mouth. Right. When you're on the bench. And so this would be a good time to change your form and say, I am exercising my discretion as outlined in Johnson, and I'm not going to allow hybrid representation in this matter. Thank you. That's right. And my guess is that a case is going to come out from the Supreme Court at some point in time that says, we will presume that the court has made the determination it was supposed to make under Johnson uh, in denying this. But until that happens, it'd be good form for you to go ahead and put that into your uh, I can see a lot of remands coming if you don't say I know I have the discretion and I exercise it. I I could see some remands coming. I agree just to make sure that people understand that which is why we're doing this episode in the first place right Wade? That's right and so (laughs) finally the one other thing that sort of crossed our minds Tane is this decision doesn't do anything to allow a represented defendant to decide he or she wants to make a closing argument during a trial or cross-examine a witness. Yeah, this has to do with filings, um, and it has to do with, you know, sort of critical date, time-sensitive filings uh, made frequently post. I mean, this speaks only to post-judgment filings. I'm, I'm assuming that it's also going to Uh, you know, apply to things like speedy trial Mm -hmm. demands and things like that. But if you look at Johnson, it seems to limit itself to those kinds of critical post-trial issues that. But I don't think, I don't think it's, it's that siloed. I mean, I think you could use it to get to something else if that was relevant. Agreed. And, and, and again, if I were seeing, you know, things like speedy trial, pro se speedy trial demands by a represented uh, defendant, I would employ that same language and and show that I'd made the determination under Johnson and uh, and and not uh, uh, you know and and make sure that that's included as you said. So that's all for this episode dealing with the Johnson decision and hybrid representation. Just because you do not have the right to hybrid representation does not mean that hybrid representation is barred or is a nullity. Even after Johnson, there is no right to hybrid representation. So for the for those of you who are having uh, elevated heart rates, <laughs> you might feel that, better. Might want to get that checked. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but it can be allowed. Hybrid hybrid representation can be allowed, where not allowing it would result in 
essentially an injustice. This outline is full of statutory and case citations and that outline can be found at goodjudgepod.com. That's right. And and what we know if it's full of statutory and case citations is Wade wrote it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, folks, listen, reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com with all of your podcast topic ideas and, uh, you know, really anything else you'd like to suggest to us. Like, you know, some more of those funny sounds would be good or... Uh, exactly. You got the Scooby-Doo sound this time. I'm so excited about that. So, folks, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in re- recent episodes, we were becoming worried that when you heard us wrapping up, you might leave the podcast. Yeah. So we have ventured down a path Yeah. to where I write things that Tane has never seen. Right. I don't read them ahead of time. Well, I read you don't read any of them ahead of time. Anything ahead of time. Yeah. And so... Be on the lookout for these because I spend a lot of time on these. I hope you find them mildly funny or interesting or whatever. Wade's doing a lot of research on this. He spends more time doing this than the episode. Absolutely. So, so Tane is a big music guy, in case anybody didn't know. Yeah. And so with that, I'm Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell. Are you old enough to remember the worldwide event known as Live Aid? It occurred way back in 1985 and really was a worldwide phenomenon. Musicians gathered in both London and Philadelphia simultaneously. It was attended live by over 150,000 people between the two venues and was seen via satellite broadcast by more than 1.9 million people. It was a fundraiser for famine relief in Ethiopia. I will tell you all that to remind I tell you all that to remind you of this fact. Most of the biggest name in music appeared and performed. That included Elvis Costello, you know, the living Elvis. Uh, And that performance was running long, and Costello was asked to ditch his planned set and only perform by himself. Therefore, Elvis Costello's only performance on Live Aid was a single cover song. Now, all of that is to get to this question. Guess which song he performed, Don't read it. Don't read it. Do you know? What would you guess Elvis Costello performed a cappella or just with a guitar? I, I that's already, a cover. I already read it. Oh, sorry. God. Well, it was right there. It was right in front of me, Wade. No, but you folks out there, I can hear you scratching your heads. Uh, he, he sang the song, All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. He should have done Radio, Radio, or Watching the Detectives, or maybe Allison, although everybody knows that song. Anyway. It is really amazing the things you learn on this podcast, isn't it? Hey, folks, thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so 
Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success and that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.